0: Well, welcome to the murder place, welcome to the mayhem, most of all welcome to First Christian Church today, I'm very glad you're with us, and uh, welcome to both both portions of the congregation, those who are here in the west and those who are in the, in the east uh, watching this, this morning, we're very glad each and every, every one of you are here today, and um, let me introduce myself, my name is Wayne, for those who are guests, I'm part of the pastoral team, and it's, we're going we're gonna to have an interesting time together today, uh, dealing with some murder and mayhem. If you'll take your Bible, please, and turn to the book of Judges. Now, Judges, if you're unfamiliar with Scripture, is t- pretty much towards the beginning. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you'll notice there's one here in the west. There's one in the pew rack in front of you in the east. There's some people moving around the auditorium there, and they'll be glad to give you one. And when we say give you one, I mean give it to you. If you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible in front of you. Take it home as our gift to you today. We'd be glad if you'd have that today. Um, I'd like to. We're, we're going to get to Judges four is where we're going to read in a few moments, but it's going to take us a while to get there this morning. Just heads up to that, okay? I want to start with a story that um, is a little distressing, a little bit unusual. It entails um, something that occurred in September of 2014, three and a half years ago. A 97-year-old man, a gentleman of Antonio Cicerella. He died as a result of a stab wound in New York City. Here are the details. He was traveling from um, the Lower East Side of Manhattan to Times Square on the subway, Somebody came up with him behind him. They, the police officers, think that maybe they were trying to mug him and get some money from him. Stabbed him in the back and uh, took off. The uh, Cicerella wasn't able to turn around and figure out who it was or anything like that. He got to the hospital and the surgeons repaired uh, the situation that was taking place inside his body. But in the process, um, in the process of saving his life, they also created a little dilemma, namely. Uh, When he died in September of 2014, he died of a bowel obstruction. The surgery caused him to actually die, and with that, with his death, the police ruled the mugging shifted from a mugging to a murder investigation. Now, there was some time between when he was mugged and when he died. As a matter of fact, while he died in 2014, he wasn't mugged in 2013 or 2014. 12 or 2011, or 2010, or 29, or 2008. He was actually mugged 50 years prior to that in 1958. And he lived to be 97 years of age. And so his daughter says he lived really well, a healthy life, until he died at 97 years of age, years later, at which the medical community acknowledged that he died as a result of this original mugging in 1958. And thus the police got involved and said, this is a murder. Isn't that crazy? But on the other hand, isn't it a murder? I mean, he didn't die from natural causes. He died as a result of being stabbed in the back. So now the police have a file on him and they're trying to figure out how do they determine who Antonio um, Cicerella's. Murderer, who is that of this understanding? That person is probably dead if Antonio is 97 years of age. But nonetheless, He is the victim of murder, and murder is ugly. It's ugly today. It was ugly in 2014. It was ugly in 1958. It was ugly um, in the ancient world. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at murder and mayhem in the ancient world of the Israelites some 3,000 years ago. And we're doing this today, kicking off a new series. You saw the title. You saw that video that our team produced um, that reviews this Old Testament book of judgment, of Judges. And um, it's a read-along series. So in other words, what we want you to do is we want you to read Judges with us throughout the coming weeks. As a matter of fact, you may recall, last week we said, read through chapter 7. I would suggest this week you read through chapter 14. And if you didn't read through chapter 7 in the last week, that's okay, we'll fill you in. But you could catch up. It's two chapters a day between now and next weekend, and you could read, and then we'll we'll do the last seven chapters. And we're taking one story from each of those you know, those passages of scripture. And um, so for today, we're going to look at this one story that's frankly going to require a little sensitivity in our way in which we chat about it. We're going to have to be delicate um, because this is a multi-generational setting. We've got kids here, and yet we have to deal with murder and mayhem. And, And frankly, I think what's pushing us, pushing me to look at this is because like you, other people have pondered and asked me in the past, why is the Bible so full of violence? Does the Bible condone violence? Is the Bible saying that this is the way to deal with things? Well, not at all. But when we read, we do, I mean, who are we kidding? We ponder the sheer horror of that violence in all its forms. And Judges is going to deal with this. And so we'll see what we can learn about that whole scenario as we spend some time in Judges in the next few weeks. To help you prepare for this whole series, I want to give you a little bit of background information. Namely, that I would not suggest that you you, uh, tonight, with your seven-year-old daughter or your seven-year-old grandson, say, let me read you a bedtime story and start reading from the book of Judges. That's probably not appropriate. It's not G-rated reading, okay? Instead, what you're going to see is very despicable people doing deplorable things, you're going to read some trashy tales about very dysfunctional characters. It's wonderful reading. It's <laughs> it's like, what? What is this, okay? What's this doing in the Bible? Well, let me say, there are very good reasons that it's there. The this story for the book of Judges covers some 390 years full of stories, but some of the stories overlap one another, so you can't read it as if it's one event followed by another specifically, Um, But for the most part, it takes place from 1220 to 1050 BC. So almost 200 years. And it's the story of Israel. It's a number of years, a couple of generations have moved on by since the nation escaped slavery in Egypt. What you had was you had a million people led by a guy named Moses. They get out of Egypt and they, they had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And they go and they wander around in the Sinai Peninsula for about 40 years. and. God says, if you follow me, I'll get you to a land flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be the promised land. And when you get there, I have some particular things that you have to do. Here's the mandate from God that Israel was given. You've got to kick out and get rid of all the nations that are there right now. And that's where you will live. This is a land that I promised to you from, the earl, from Abraham, the, the original forefather of you all. You are going to live here. And um, it's what we call modern-day Israel, where Israel exists today. They they were to move there and and take possession of the land. And there were twelve tribes in the nation of Israel, and so they were assigned different portions of the property that they were to go to, you could say, well, the tribe of Benjamin was assigned to the lower half, so you could say, they were sent to Georgia in our space, okay? And then Manasseh was sent, you know, like they took over Oklahoma and a different group took over Wyoming, if you know what I mean. They were all, these 12 different spaces that they were all supposed to go. And they were supposed to, as they moved into those places, say, this is our land, this is, we're in charge. Well, they did that and it went well, for about five minutes. That's as long as it lasted, almost, okay? Because they just didn't keep follow through. They didn't follow through with what God had called them to do. As a matter of fact, Moses had kind of warned them about this, and he'd had some concerns about that. He had said to them as he was dying, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers. And so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the, you know, the fathers of the nation have been told, you're going to get this space. It's going to be where you live. When he brings, that, he brings you to that, it's going to be a land with large flourishing cities, cities you didn't build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you didn't provide, wells you didn't dig, vineyards and olive groves you didn't plant. When you get there, when it's all really sweet, you're out in the wilderness right now and you've been had 400 years of slavery and we're in this difficult spot of how are we going to get food every day right now and all that sort of stuff. When all of that is passed and you get to this wonderful space, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And unfortunately, they didn't listen to Moses because as soon as they got to the land and they began to enjoy the freedoms and the prosperity and the wealth and the power that came with having their own space, they stopped dealing with the nations around them. In fact, they started to emulate those other countries, those other groups, people groups. And in doing so, they moved away from God's protection and blessing. Here's what I mean. They'd been out in the wilderness and God had said, wherever I go, you go. And there was a cloud that they would follow. And God said, if you stay with that cloud, then my protection will be about you at all times. And you'll have my blessing upon you. But once they got to where they were no longer feeling like they were dependent upon God, because they had money and they had power and their own stuff, if you will, you know what they did? They began to move away from relying on God And consequently, as soon as they got out from under that protection and blessing of God, the nations around them began to visit Israel with violence and horror. And so what they'd do, they'd they'd be out in the midst of this violence and horror. Then they'd pray to God. And in essence, they'd say, God, we walked away from you. Please help us. And so they would move their way back under God's protection because God would raise up a military leader who would lead them to peace and growing prosperity. And they'd get back under God's guidance again. And then the cycle would start all over again. Every time they got power and freedom and wealth, they wandered off. And the book of Judges has seven cycles of peace and then forgetting God's care, the growing apathy regarding spirituality, violence would come along, and then there'd be a call to God to help in the midst of despair. And so you have this back and forth seven times. And those military leaders, the ones who would help them come back under God's provision, under God's protection, are the heroes of the book and the stories of Judges. A more accurate term, rather than calling them judges, would be that they were military leaders. Except in one case, one person of all the military leaders that they had that are found in the Book of Judges, uh, was in fact a judge, and that is who we're looking at today. Deborah. She was a judge. Deborah is a judge who uh, wasn't a military leader, but she got involved in the military and helped the military figure out how they were going to do things. Okay, so she was one who instructed the military leaders, and and. By the way, I've got to, I'd like to pose a question for you, as for you to ponder and maybe discuss over lunch today, because now, I, even as I bring this question to you, I want to be really careful that offer you this: that you can't lay um, Western democracy nations on the, the nation of Israel. And I mean, that's a heresy, it's a very racist. There's a racist, her, racist heresy out there called British Israel in which it basically says that white people of European descent have taken over the role of Israel in the, life, in the work of God. And that's a heretical, racist approach. So you have to be very careful with that, okay? But in the midst of that concern about that, I do think it's fair to ask, to wonder and at least explore, what about nations that are founded on Judeo-Christian principles and underpin- underpinnings? Um, Our nations like the U.S. and Canada and Britain and France, would it be possible that we could be following a pattern that's similar to ancient Israel where we would move away from God's blessings and away from God's instructions and thus in days ahead soon be facing greater threats of violence? Are we in a similar cycle? And if so, how much violence has to be visited upon us or upon the world before we implore God and ask God to intervene? How despairing do we have to be? Has our wealth and our prosperity and our military might, which is paralleled in the nation of Israel, has that caused us to move toward a spiritual apathy? I'm not gonna answer that question. That's something for you to discuss at lunch today, okay? But in the meanwhile, let's see how it played out for the Israelites, okay? Judges chapter four, verse one, we're gonna read about Deborah, it says, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord now that Ehud was dead. Ehud, eh, so we're stepping into one of these periods where they were under God's blessing, they've walked away, a fellow of Ehud has called them back, okay? Now he's dead, they've wandered off again. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, make note of that name. That's the, that's, there's going to be a couple of key characters, and Sisera is one of them, okay? The commander of his army, he's a bad guy, okay? Sister's a bad guy. He was based in Harasheth Helgaim because he had 900 chariots filled with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. So he's been the perpetrator of violence, murder, and mayhem on them for 20 years. And now they're going to say, we need some help. They're in this cycle, all right? And they cry to the Lord for help. And now Deborah, this is the here come the judge, here come the judge moment, Okay. So you go, what on earth is that? Well, you're not quite old enough to enjoy my humor, but good, good luck on that. You have to go Google, here come the judge, see what you can find today, all right? So Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidus, was leading Israel at the time. She's leading the nation. She held court, and there you see where she has the places where she has, is acting as a judge. And so she is doing her thing. She's leading the nation, and... Um, she realizes that the nation is in really bad trouble. The nation has abandoned God's ways. They are spiritually lazy and their lives have been going bad for some 20 years. And she's going to see, can I lead the nation out of this? Can I counteract this bad guy? The bad guy in the, in the story, his name is Sisera. Can I deal with him? So make note of that name, okay? Sisera, that's, what's, that's the person that she's going to end up fighting with, and that's where the murder mayhem is going to come under him. So sis, Deborah arranges for her army to fight Sisera, all right? Her army was led by a guy with a very interesting name. I'm, I'll just tell you straight up. Can you see it there? Who's the guy that's leading her army? A guy by the name of Barak. Now there you go. Now, I got to tell you, of all the people I know and I've ever heard of, that's only the second time I've heard of the name Barak, okay? Barak, not the president, but Barak the Israelite, he and his army, the Israelite army, they chase the bad guy, Sisera, and the foreign army gets routed, Sisera flees, and... He goes to hide in a woman's tent, which frankly is something you shouldn't do in that culture or anything like that. So it's really, there's there's all kinds of mess going on there that we don't have time to unpack. Read with me in verse 15 what happens. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. So they're all dead, okay? And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. He's the only one left. The leader is running for his life. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Hirosheth-Hagayim, and all of Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael. This is a lady. Her name is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael, this is the lady, comes out to meet Sisera and says to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she covered him in a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. And standing in the doorway, standing in the doorway of the tent, he told her, if anyone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there, say no. And then the story gets really ugly and violent from there. And for the sake of the kids in the room, I'm not going to read it out loud. I invite you to read what happens to this guy Between verse 20 and verse 22. Somewhat of an ugly death. Take a look. What happens? Should we just say he comes to a very violent end, right? It's a gruesome scene. A particularly horrendous way to die, I would think. And we have to ask, why is that in the Bible? What are the implications for us? Why did the Holy Spirit say, well, judges needs to be included in Scripture? Well, I want you to remember this as we talk about this today. The principle for reading judges as you're reading in, in the coming weeks is don't read it as prescriptive. It is descriptive. It's describing what happened. It's not saying what should happen. It's describing what happened. And Not every bad person, in Scripture, or frankly, every bad person you know should have his or her temple come in contact with a tent peg. It's not saying that. Are you surprised? No, it's not saying that. And it's also, by the way, not a narrative that you should use to say that female judges are better than male judges. It's not saying that. It's just saying Deborah was leading, she gets the army to do the right thing, and Jael comes along and she does, she does incisor. He's dead, right? And so with that story in play, we have to ask the question, what, why is it there? If it's not to say everybody should come in contact with a, dead, with a, with a tent peg who's bad, if it's not there for that, what is it there for? Well, I want to draw some um, conclusions in general that will frame this story as well as the ones that are in front of us in the coming weeks. First of all, the implications of Deborah's story is, first one is you have to deal with godly leadership. The book of Judges, in particular Deborah's story, point out the value of God leadership, godly leadership. See, the nation had suffered for some 20 years before Deborah stepped up to the plate. And once she came on the scene, the, peace had, the nation had peace for 40 years. Look, look over at the very end of chapter, chapter 5. Flip over the page to chapter 5, and what do you see there? Verse 31 Deborah is singing a song, giving saying, "Hey, this has been really good. How this has played out." And she says, "So may all your enemies perish." Now she's not saying that everybody gets a tent peg. No, she's not saying that. But may all may may peace flourish. And at the end of that, what does it say? The land had peace for forty years. So they've had violence for twenty years. She steps up, and they have peace for forty years. Of course. The fact that it says they had peace for 40 years indicates they didn't have it for 41 years. They didn't have it for 50 years. So at the end of 40 years, she dies and the peace disappears. They wait for the next leader to come along because they wander off away from the protection and blessing of God. And this business of leadership has implications for our nation. It has, I believe, significant implications for our state. It has implications for our community. And for the sake of us here today, it has implications for our congregation and particularly for those of us who are charged with the responsibility of leading our church. And as a leader among leaders, if you will, I'm aware of how judges might play out in the life of our congregation. I'm not saying that (laughs) we're ever going to come to the place where there's murder and mayhem here, but I'm aware that one of my responsibilities to make certain that the Congregation stays right under the blessing and the protection of God and, and judges teaches me and teaches all of us as a leader that is part of my responsibility and i 'm also aware that my influence uh, is really important in that regard. I have been i 've had this pulpit if you will for twenty four years now and I'm aware that just the longevity of my ministry here means that I certainly have more responsibilities than I did 24 years ago, simply by the sheer size of the church, or the resources that we have, or the staff, but I'm also aware that I probably have, I'll just say it straight up, I probably have more authority than I used to have. For most in the life of the church, I'm the only lead pastor that you've known at First Christian Church, and that has it has some wonderful benefits, but it also has some cautions in that my fingerprint, Wayne Kent's fingerprint can be seen in a lot of places. And I don't say that with pride, I say that with awareness. And I have to be very careful that that fingerprint is God's impression, not just mine. Whether you look at the building, whether you look at the staff, what, what you see about what we do overseas, what you see what we do in the, in the community. I understand that I have a significant influence on a lot of that. And um, so to that end, I have a responsibility I'd like to ask you to take on today in light of Judges. Please pray that the leaders around me will always review the ways in which that fingerprint is impressed on people's lives and upon the vision of this church. May that fingerprint be God-impressed and God-led. And if you're so inclined, I would invite you to gently, and I want to use the word gently very strongly, I'd invite you to gently compare the ancient leaders to those who lead our congregation. You have my permission, or more so, my request. Please kindly keep me and all of us in leadership. Keep us... Compare what's happening in Judges and what's happening in the life of the church is, are the leaders of our congregation continuing to strive to listen to God's call on our church? And to that end, I'd simply say my prayer has always been, God, I ask that you would lead me as I lead the church, because I want to do it right. If if there's going to be a fingerprint there, if there's going to be, you know, an ethos of the church that I influence, may it be your ethos, God. So that's the first thing, is what to deal about, about leadership in the life of the church. And then the second one has to do about assimilation. Now, listen very carefully. You're going, I don't see anything here about assimilation in, in Deborah's story. Well, it's there. See, the people of Israel always got into trouble when they tried to um, combine, if you will, their worship of the true God with the idolatry practices of the nations around them. And it wasn't like they would just one day come up and say, hey, we're, we're not going to worship the true God anymore. Now we're going to be worshiping other gods. Now, it didn't happen so blatantly at first. Usually it was through, uh, through appeasement, if you will. They would say, "Okay, we we we're going to have some political alliances with the nations around us. We're going to have um, some business dealings with the nations around us, and we're going to have some rela- you know relationships. We're going to let people marry in and and um, and when that would it was like, okay, my kid has fallen in love with the kid, you know, my son has fallen in love with the, with the, the girl across across the back." fence proverbial, You know, like it's, there's someone right over there. They're, now we're, they're in love and we should, we should invite her in or we should invite him in. And, and okay, so in order to make the marriage work, we're going to have to have some compromise. And it would have been different if the Israelites had demanded conversion, but they didn't. They looked for appeasement. And the people of Israel slowly in these seven cycles, they would accept non-godly viewpoints and non-godly life approaches. And you, know, you go, wow, Wayne, what's that got to say about the United States? Well, again, I don't want to, it's heretical to say that we've taken the place of Israel. I'm not suggesting that, all right? But there might be some lessons there, at least some. Be, but I don't know where the tension is because we live in a diverse land. Our, our nation was designed as such. And we have to acknowledge that the charter of this nation was that we were built to be a diverse population with a plurality of ideas, but we are a republic democracy, that's who we are, that's significantly different than the theocracy of the nation of Israel. I'm not calling for us to be a theocracy, but I just, well, maybe you can talk about that at lunch too, all right? So it has some issues, this story has some issues about our nation, but it has much, many more implications for this business of assimilation when it comes to our church. Our congregation has literally thousands of people who come here from a variety of different places, okay? Many people didn't know Jesus before you showed up here. Others come from different backgrounds. But I'm quite aware that we will only remain strong and viable if we hold, as all kinds of people are coming in, and we're so thankful for that, but we will only remain viable and strong if we hold to biblical values and ethics. Inviting all kinds of different people here, yes. But... We have to hold strong to those biblical guidelines and ethics, even if the nature, nation around us or the culture around us declines to hold to those biblical lifestyles or ethics. And so even as we are a congregation that says we embrace change, by all means we do. We've managed to do that with some grace over the years, but even as we embrace change, there are some things that are not negotiable. And I want to give you a few of those today. I don't have time to. Un- we don't have time to unpack them, and so I'm just going to give you a list. If you have been a long time follower of Jesus Christ, you'll know what I'm saying. If you're maybe new to faith or considering faith right now, I have to tell you, hang with us in the weeks ahead and months ahead, and we'll unpack these. But for today, I want to tell you what some non-negotiables are when it comes to the life of this church. One, we will always say that that Jesus is God's son. God's only Son. We will also always say that salvation and eternal life is only available through Jesus Christ. We will say that Scripture is the final authority for us, for our individual lives, for our congregational polity, and our congregational ministries. We will say that the Holy Spirit is active and alive among us, and we will say that there is indeed a heaven and there is indeed a hell, and that it's our responsibility to make certain. We pull as many people Uh, Or if you put it this way, push as many people towards heaven and pull as many people away from hell as we can. Now, you go, whoa, Wayne, you said that really fast. I know I did. It's about three years of seminary training right there. Good luck with that this week, okay? There's a lot more I could say, but that's probably for another time. But let me tell you why I'm so strident on these matters for our congregation. Because when churches fail to recognize the repercussions of doing assimilation in a biblical way, they simply invite chaos and struggle. You see it in the life of Israel over and over again in the book of Judges. It's sad. It's distressing, and in the case of Israel, it led to mayhem and murder every time. I'm not suggesting that if we step away, if we were to step away from those principles, that we'd start murdering one another. But I am suggesting it would very quickly become chaotic around here. And so we'll, we make all kinds of changes on a regular basis, and I'm so thankful for your grace and your flexibility in that regard, but there are some non-negotiables. You've just heard that what they are. So, you go, Wayne, that's pretty heavy. Well, let, let, let me see if I could explain it one more way with a story that will kind of pull it all together for you. And it's not a story about ancient Israel. In fact, it's a story coming out of Africa. It's a story about elephants. Um, elephants are wonderful animals. They have a majesty about them. They have wonderful memories. I, I've, been travel, I, I've been blessed to Traveled to Africa on a number of occasions. And um, a number of years ago, Leslie and I were there with some people, and um, I was driving a South African Kombi in Kruger National Park. Long story. And a combi is like a, a large minivan, if you will. And you're driving on the right, you're driving, you know, the steering wheel's on the right-hand side of the vehicle. And so we're driving down the road, and in, my, in the rearview mirror, which is over there when you're driving on that side, uh, I noticed an elephant crossed behind us, big elephant. I mean, we'd seen elephants on the road, but this was a big elephant, and the tusks were kind of coming down close to the ground. Not all the way to the ground, but it was a huge elephant. I thought, well, it's only less than a quarter of a mile back. Let's go see it. So I, I backed up, you know, so I'm going like this, put in reverse, going back, 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 back. Got to about, oh, I know, 150 feet from within close to that elephant. You know, this stage is 52 feet wide, so three times the stage. It's, we're a ways away, but we're, we're up and close with... African nature, right there. And that elephant is standing in the middle of the road looking at us. And we've all got our heads cranked back, you know, a little bit because we're, we're looking back. And suddenly its ears came out and its trunk came up and it trumpeted us and we took off in a flash. It was going to come after us. We were certain. I've got to tell you, moments like that with elephants are these wonderful, powerful, powerful events. I, But for the most part, they're powerful because we know that elephants and humans, these wonderful animals, really don't coexist with humans very well. And in Africa, in recent years, that has been the case because as farmland has has increased, that farmland has encroached upon the land that elephants normally go you know, move around. In. And the elephants don't like those farms. So when farmers put up fences, I mean, they just plow right through them. They don't care about that. They put up, you know, they're, they're strong, big animals and they can just go right through. And the elephants remember where the fences are. And so they'll, they'll just keep coming back and keep coming back and messing with the fence every time. Except in 2010, a researcher learned, her name, her name is uh, Lucy King she realized that elephants really don't like bees. There are very few things that elephants are afraid of. They're not afraid of lions or anything, but they don't like bees. Why? Well, could you imagine if you come across a beehive as an elephant, the last thing you want is a bunch of bees up your trunk. I've never had that happen, but I think it would not be very nice, okay? So they actually have a... (laughs) They remember where the beehives are. They stay away. And they actually have in their calling, in their conversations with one another, they have a way that they can warn other elephants stay away from this place. So Lucy had this brilliant idea. What if we were to put some beehives hang them on the fence. And when the elephants come up to that and they hear the bees, they're gonna tell all the other elephants to stay away. And they've tried this on 34 farms and it's been absolutely spectacular. The elephants are staying away. And frankly, the farmers are making money from honey. It's a very cool thing. Why am I telling that story? Well, are we putting beehives out in the parking lot? No. Are we bringing elephants in? No, no. But I'm aware of this. In our present culture, there is lumbering towards us at times settings and situations where it would be easy to be like the people of Israel and compromise and say, Well, we'll just let this occur. You know, it doesn't matter if we declare that Jesus is God's son. We just let that slide by because it's nice to be together. Well, there are some things that are non negotiable, and they may seem like they're small, but I can promise you this as one of the leaders of this congregation on these non-negotiables we will take our lessons from the book of Judges and say, we will be the congregation that as a group stays under the protection and under the blessings of God Almighty. And as an individual, I'm going to do all I can to say, what does the Bible say about this issue, that issue, the other? Not what the culture around us says, but what does scripture say about these matters? And so for us in the coming weeks. We're going to see and discover places where, when the people of Israel didn't set up those fences, if you will, when they didn't set up the perimeters, then the giants came lumbering in and destroyed them, and they faced murder and mayhem. You might read about it this week, chapters 8 through 14, we'll go from there. Look for a story about something to do with a millstone, all right? Let's pray together. Lord, for my friends here today. We want to be people, God, who are always adapting and changing and, you know, God, we don't want to be the same at age 20. We don't want to be the same person we were at 10. And at age 40, we don't want to be the same person we were at 20. And when we're at age 80, we don't want to be the same place we were at 40. We want to grow and move and see how you work in us. But Lord, there are some things that are non-negotiable. We want to stay under your care and protection at all times. Lord, as a congregation, we want to be your people who are engaged in your ministry and your work in this community beyond a, beyond a doubt. We'll do whatever we can, Lord, so that we can tell people about heaven and we can warn people about hell. We can tell people about the saving grace that comes through Jesus Christ, your only son. As a congregation, God, help us to hold that intention and to to understand how we change and how we, and yet there are non negotiables. Work that out in our own lives, Lord, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.